Right. Yeah, thank you. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome uh, to Grace today. We're really glad that you made worship a priority today in your life. Thank you so much for that, and we always pray that that choice is going to be a blessing to you. Pastor Bradford Robinson, who pastors in Mississippi, wrote the following dialogue that I find quite, quite penetrating. Dear preacher, I'm a member of your audience, and I sit before you in silent desperation today. I'm a teenager who is in serious trouble at school, and it's only a matter of days now until my parents are notified. I'm the mother of a good Christian girl who has just told me she is pregnant. I'm a husband whose marriage is falling apart and I can't seem to stop it. I'm a senior citizen and a doctor just told me my wife can't possibly live more than a couple of months. I'm a successful businessman. I've gotten everything I wanted in life, but it isn't enough. I'm blue and depressed. I don't even know why, but I can't keep on living with this emptiness much longer. I'm a parent whose adult child is in the far country, and we're so far apart, we can't even discuss it spiritually anymore. I'm a single, and I just invested everything I have in a relationship with another person who walked away without even looking back. I'm an abused wife who often covers my bruises with makeup. I'm terrified to stay and can't afford to leave. I suppose I've got to stay for the sake of the kids. Oh, you can't see my desperation by looking at me. I've learned to hide my feelings so deeply that sometimes I even fool myself. The people who sit on either side of me would be surprised to know that I walk the floor at night and cry. I can imagine the shocked reaction of the people here in this row if I told them I've considered committing suicide. Or maybe they wouldn't be shocked at all. Maybe they have too. So preacher, when I sit in front of you I don't want to hear a few thoughts on transactional analysis or a theological exhortation on evolution. I don't want you to share a few thoughts that you gleaned on Saturday night. I don't want to review the latest book on pastoral counseling. I don't want to be amused with Reader Digest jokes or begged for money for the new educational unit or made to feel guilty about the world's hungry. I hurt. I'm empty and useless. And my question of you is the same one the king asked of God's prophet, Jeremiah. Is there any word from the Lord? Now, I suppose that almost all of us have felt hopeless at times. Henry David Thoreau famously said, most the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And maybe you today feel like you're in a situation and it's just beyond your control and you don't know where to turn. Well, you know what? I think God does have a word for you today. I want us to look now at two desperate 
people, and I think we can learn a lot from their situation and how Jesus interacted with them. These two people are very different. But the thing they had in common is that they were both so distraught and they were coming to Jesus for an answer. The first desperate person is Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. He was desperate because his little 12-year-old daughter was desperately sick. Verse 41 reads, Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, I can't prove it, but I believe that Jairus' peers were probably embarrassed that he'd become so desperate that he was now turning to a, what in their minds would have been a faith healer, to try to get help. You see, most of the religious leaders by this point had either written Jesus off as an imposter or worse, they were plotting to kill him. But Jairus didn't care, quite frankly. He was desperate. His daughter was obviously dying and he would do anything he could. He didn't really care what people thought. And so Jesus, who loved children, he began to follow Jairus to his home to help. But on the way, there was an interesting interruption. Jesus was interrupted by a woman who was also in a desperate situation. And it's interesting how their paths cross. It's interesting how these two stories intersect. I think that alone has a lesson to teach us. So desperate person number two, we could call the hemorrhaging woman. Verse 42, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could help her. Max Lucado, the popular Christian author, writes, this woman's chronic menstrual disorder would be difficult for any woman of any era. But for a Jewess, Nothing could be worse. No part of her life was left unaffected. Sexually, she could not touch her husband. Maternally, she could not bear children. Domestically, anything she touched in the house was considered unclean. Spiritually, she was not allowed to enter the temple to worship. She was physically exhausted and socially ostracized. Now, this passage is so interesting to me because I think it's a beautiful example of the diversity and the kinds of people who came to seek Jesus out for help. Just think about that for a moment. Here is a man interceding for his child, and then there's a woman asking the Lord for, or seeking help, rather, for herself. On the one hand, you've got Jairus, who is a powerful person. He would be considered a prominent person in the community because he's a ruler of the synagogue, a leader that people look up to. He was probably pretty well off. The woman, whose name we don't even know, she is nameless, never, her name is never shared in the story, she is kind of a 
fringe person or a nobody, as we might say, in the society, and she's probably broke. I find it humorous that in Mark's gospel, it said that she had spent all she had on doctors, but she wasn't getting any better. I find it funny that Luke, who was a medical doctor, left that out, okay? That would look kind of bad on medical doctors. But Jairus has been blessed with 12 years of joy with his daughter, and this woman has had 12 years of misery with her particular physical affliction. And Jairus' need was very public. The woman's was hidden. Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue, but the woman's hemorrhaging made her, by the rules of that day, unclean so that she could not even enter the synagogue or the temple. Jairus' situation with his daughter was literally life-threatening. She was on the edge of death. And this woman's, although horrible, you might consider a little less serious. But the point is, both of them were praying and seeking an answer. Now, friends, the Bible says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything, even the little things. Someone asked a professor of theology if we should pray about the little things of life. He asked, can you name any of our needs that are really big to God? So in a sense, it's perspective, right? It's perspective. It's kind of relative. But Jairus' only daughter was dying. That was certainly major. And Jesus was hurrying to her side. And yet, he stopped to assist a nameless woman with a somewhat lesser problem. I love that about Jesus. You see, we discover from him, and this is important for you to understand today, if you're wondering what this Christianity thing is all about and what it means to be a follower of Christ, we are following one who cares and deeply loves every person, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. Oh, he doesn't love all the things we do. Oh, no. But he loves us. He loves us, and that's so important that we understand that. And I think the Lord is particularly drawn when we are desperate and brokenhearted. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, I ponder this regularly, is Psalm 34, verse 18. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So if you're feeling a bit desperate today, like these two people, there's a sense in which God is even closer drawn to you. But this woman, seeing the crowd around Jesus and seeing Jesus in a hurry, probably thought to herself, well, he doesn't have time for me. I'm a nobody. I'm not importing. But maybe if I just touch his clothing, maybe if I could could just reach out there and just touch his The garment, his robe, maybe, who knows, I just might be healed. Now, how how are we to view a faith like that? The commentators go wild with this. Some believe her faith was mere superstition. That somehow she thought there was magic in the robe itself. I think differently, quite frankly. 
Because you see, the common belief in that culture, the common belief is that when the true Messiah really came and the Jewish people were eagerly waiting his coming, when the Messiah came, there would be healing power, they felt, even in the tassels of his garment. And I believe that this is an indication that this dear, desperate woman believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But whatever the reasons, God certainly honored her faith. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Wow. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, The people are crowding and pressing against you. If you go to a concert that's packed out at the Times Union Center or some sporting event, and there's a last-second shot in the game at the end, and and it's been an overtime game, and everybody's kind of itchy and wanting to get out of there already, and it comes right down to the end, and most people stay, and boom, now the game's over. And you know what happens, right? You've been there. Everybody hits the aisles then headed for their cars, wanting to get out of there quickly. And if you turned around at that moment as the crowd is pressing together, getting through the doors and said, hey, did somebody brush against me? People would think you're crazy. Haven't you been here before? This is just the way it works. It gets a little crowded around here. You're gonna get jostled by the crowd. And it was a big crowd. And Jesus is being jostled around. Who touched me? Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing. But Jesus said in verse 46, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Isn't that curious to you? You see, I would want to say to you, if you were in one of the healing occupations, perhaps a nurse, maybe you work in the medical field helping people, perhaps... uh, You're a counselor or therapist or personal coach of some kind. Maybe you're involved in ministry to people in some way on a regular basis. I want you to know that requires a special energy from you. There's something about that as you pour into people, as you genuinely love and care. And here, Jesus exerted energy when he healed people. But there's another important question, at least to me. I wonder what you think. Why would Jesus require this woman to kind of identify herself and come public? I mean, come on. Isn't a healing a healing whether it's ever made public or not? Right? It's a healing. Praise God. But why would he require her to publicly admit what she had done? I think perhaps one reason is He wanted to be sure that her faith was in him, not in the robe itself. He didn't want her to have this mistaken notion that there was some magic power in the garment or in faith itself. You hear people in our culture today say, oh, brother, you just got to believe. Sister, you just got to have faith. You ever heard that? And sometimes they may even say, you've got to just believe and have faith in yourself. Now listen carefully. Our faith 
is not in faith. Our faith is not in ourself and our own ability to change things. Our faith is in the person of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior. Our faith is in him. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Secondly, I think Jesus highlighted her healing publicly because it would increase the faith of Jairus. And he was going to need that. You know, one of the reasons we encourage you to have fellowship, to get in a small group, to be regular in your worship attendance corporately, one of the reasons we encourage you to get involved in service with others is that there is a powerful thing that happens in your life when you get around people of faith. When you get around people who really have God working in their life and they're excited about it. I'm not talking about Christians that are crotchety and downers. That's a whole different deal. When you get around excited Christians that are seeing God work and do things in their lives, and they're far from perfect, but boy, they're excited about the journey they're on with the Lord, let me tell you, your faith increases along with them. And that's a powerful thing, and we all, all need that. Verse 47 reads, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now, the reason I highlighted that about Jesus calling her forth publicly is, here's a strange thing I notice in the community of faith today, in the church. There's a lot of people who call on the Lord for a healing or for help from something or for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, for God to fix relationships and all that, but they just want to be a kind of anonymous. You know what I mean? They, they want to know they're forgiven of their sins. They want to know where they're going when they die. They want to believe that the Lord's presence is in their lives, but they'd rather just kind of be a 007 secret agent Christian. I see it a lot, actually. It's actually epidemic these days. People don't want to go public. Why? Well, maybe they're afraid their family would disapprove. Maybe they're afraid their coworkers would ridicule or their friends would kind of distance themselves. I, I get some of the concerns, but I just don't believe Jesus allows us to have a private healing very long. Remember Nicodemus in John 3? He came to Jesus at night. You know why? Because he didn't want his fellow members of the Sanhedrin to know. And the last recorded words that Jesus shared with Nicodemus are, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. In other words, it's out in the open. It's public so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been through God. And when Jesus was crucified, guess what? It was Nicodemus and one other man, Joseph of Arimathea, who publicly took Jesus' body down off the cross to bury it. So here's my question. What about you? 
No, really, what about you? Have you ever gone public with your faith? Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me or denies me before people, wow, he said, I will disown before my Father in heaven. If Jesus publicly died on the cross for you, shouldn't we publicly be willing to stand for him? I believe so. And if you've never gone public with your faith, I pray this would be the moment that God would be nudging you and showing you, look, if you've never been baptized publicly as a demonstration of your faith in Christ, now might be that time. And if you've never shared a testimony or maybe reached out and just kind of gotten with a group of people to let them know, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, maybe it's high time you did. This woman tried to go unnoticed, but Jesus wouldn't allow her to. He gave her all of his attention at this moment. One nameless woman in the crowd. I love that about Jesus. It's so impressive. And again, we need to learn from Jesus how to treat people who are hurting. That is, we need to notice, if at all possible. And he said to her in verse 48, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. <laughs> the word there used for daughter is a hapex legomena. It means it's the only time that particular Greek word is ever used in the entire New Testament. It's a unique word, a special word of endearment. Somebody wrote, to the loved, a word of affection is a morsel. But to the loved, starved. A word of affection can be a feast, and Jesus gave this woman <coughs> a banquet. But while all this is going on with this dear woman, can you imagine what Jairus is going through? His daughter is on the brink of death, and Jesus stops to help a nameless woman in the crowd. He must have been going berserk inside and growing in his anxiety, perhaps becoming frustrated, I don't know. But his daughter is wasting away. And then he receives this terrible news. While Jesus was still speaking, Someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. His world stopped. We don't know if he crumbled in a heat to the ground and wept. The text doesn't tell us. But I'm sure his relatives tried to comfort him and persuade him to face reality here and quit hoping for a miracle. Don't bother the teacher anymore. It's over. It's over. Let's go home. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. And Jairus allowed Jesus to continue toward the home with him because he had no place else to go. I mean, where's he going to turn in this moment of grief and pain? 
And when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Another thing I just love about Jesus is that unlike many supposed faith healers today who seem to want to make an exhibition of the healing, Jesus often did healings in private, often. It's like he was concerned about the privacy and the dignity of the individual. And so here, he takes his three closest disciples and the girl's mom and dad and no one else. He doesn't want to provide a spectacle for the sensation-hungry crowd, but I think he does want witnesses to what is about to happen. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Now keep in mind that in that culture, they paid people to wail and mourn at funerals. There were public mourners who were paid to do that. You say, what a strange custom. Well, the psychology behind it was that if there were people there wailing loudly and crying out that the real mourners, the real mourners would be able to mourn well without being so conspicuous. Plus, if you were wealthy, and this is certainly a less noble motive, if you were wealthy and you had a lot of mourners, everybody would just think you were important. And while this sounds so strange to us, I mean, we pay people to show emotion. You ever watch infomercials? We pay people to laugh and cry and do all kinds of things on ads, on TV, and on, over the internet. People are paid to clap and laugh and get excited. Well, they paid people to mourn. But Jesus said to the wailers, stop wailing. She is not dead, but asleep. I find it interesting that a number of times in the Bible, it relates death to sleep. When Stephen was the first Christian martyr, stoned to death, it says that he went asleep. When Lazarus had been dead for four days, Jesus said, he's asleep. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Interesting, huh? This little girl, a little girl asked her father what it was like to die. And the father gulped and said, well, you know, honey, that sometimes when you've fallen asleep in the back seat on the way home from somewhere late at night, and then we carry you in the house into your room, mom tucks you into bed, and the next morning, all you know is that you wake up in your room. I think that's what it's like to die, he said. You go to sleep here, and you wake up in the Father's house in your own room. Death, Jesus said, for the believer will be like falling asleep. And resurrection for Jesus will be just as easy as rousing someone from sleep. So Jesus says to these professional mourners, look, stop. She's not dead. She's asleep. Verse 53, they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. 
And by the way, some people will scoff at you when you express faith about life after death. When you talk about, well, one day I I know I'll be reunited with family members who've gone on and they were in Christ. They may smile condescendingly at you, but inwardly they may be thinking of you as a benign idiot. Oh, yeah. Nice comfort there, they think. Well, Jesus said, she's asleep. Look, I'm the resurrection and the life. He knew what was about to occur. Verse 54 says, he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned. Interesting phrase, huh? Her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, why would Jesus say, don't tell anyone about this? Shh, kind of keep this quiet. Let this kind of go under the radar. Well, as we've said now at least a couple of times, this is what some scholars call the messianic secret. It's just that whole desire of Jesus that his time had not yet come to fruition and that sure enough, right on God's perfect timetable, eventually his hand would be forced. But here he's saying, look, don't say a lot about this lest people who misunderstand my mission get out of control and try to force my hand prematurely. So what are we to learn from this amazing story of two desperate people whose lives intersected? Well, I I think there's just one lesson as we wrap up today. When you are desperate, reach out to Jesus Christ and keep trusting him even through disaster. Sometimes, just like this woman, it's hard for us to reach out to Jesus because of the people around him. Maybe that's true of you. Maybe you come to a church service like this and you look around at some people and you think, oh, they're so spiritual and I feel so unworthy. And so that keeps you from reaching out to Jesus because you think, I'm not worthy. Or maybe... On the flip side, you come to a service like this and get around Christian people sometimes and you think they're pompous and hypocritical and phony. And you allow that to keep you from reaching out to Jesus because you're turned off by it. Now, I hope you're listening. I happen to believe that some of the finest people on the planet are Christ followers. I know some of them. They're the real deal. They're amazing. Their lives are consistent. They live their values. They live out the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. They balance grace and truth. Christian people are not perfect. But Jesus is changing us from the inside out. So please don't let the crowd around Jesus prevent you from touching him. Or maybe you come to church and you think, oh, it's so big, I'll never be noticed here. 
But please understand, there's a reason the church is a larger church and that God's growing it. It's because a lot of people have found Jesus here. And he can bring the same hope and healing to your life today. And I would say to those of you who may be feeling hopeless or desperate, keep on trusting Jesus, even though you may be going through a tough season. Maybe you feel you're in a disastrous time. Would you consider something here? When Jairus reached out to Jesus, did you ever think about this? Temporarily, his situation got worse, not better. There was this delay that agonized him. And there was this horrible news that his daughter had died. And then there was this long trip home, not knowing if he could ever put the pieces of his life back together. Why did everything seem to be falling apart? In a world like ours, it's so important to me that you not have any illusions about what coming to Christ really means. Because you start off with these illusions, guess what? When trouble comes, you're going to be disillusioned. Being a Christian does not guarantee you immediate healing of all your problems. In fact, can I tell you, when you put your trust in Christ, I'm just keeping it real here, because I don't want you to have illusions. When you put your trust in Christ, some things may get worse for a while. How's that for honesty? They did for Jairus when he reached out. The cancer may spread. The unexpected bills arrive. Your friends may betray you. A loved one may die. If Jesus healed everybody immediately, people would come to him not by faith for salvation. They would come to him for selfish exemption from problems. So what am I saying? Real faith is not the belief that God will do what you want immediately. No, real faith is the belief that God will do what is right ultimately. And there is a big, big difference in the two. One of my heroes in the faith, a man I've looked up to for many years now and drawn a lot of wisdom and inspiration from is Pastor Bob Russell. He's long since retired from the pastorate, but he pastored in Kentucky at Southeast Christian Church for 40 years, a marvelous leader. I'll never forget hearing him share that the hardest funeral he ever preached in 40 years as pastor of that church was the funeral of a young girl who had been run over by her father in a truck. You see, the father had rented this big truck, was working in the front yard, and he didn't know that his precious daughter was playing at the back wheels of the truck, and he backed over her, killing her instantly. We we, we can't imagine the wrenching agony of that family. He said the funeral home was packed, but honestly, there was very little comfort that you could bring that could ease the pain. And after everyone left, Pastor Russell said, and I quote, I stood a few feet away from the young mother and father as they were left alone in the funeral parlor. 
And they stood there stroking the golden hair of their daughter. And at the mother's request, a musician then played the daughter's favorite song, You Are My Sunshine. And the mother started singing to her daughter. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. Pastor Russell said, I was just sick. At that moment, I would have given everything I had if Jesus Christ would have physically come into that room and grabbed that girl by the hand and just said, get up, little Ashley. Unspeakable joy could have happened. But he didn't. But you know what? One day he will. One day he will. And we hold on through difficulties one, knowing that one day he's going to say, get up, little lamb. All your troubles are over. So brothers and sisters, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ is not that he will make everything right immediately and do what we want immediately. It's that he will do what is right ultimately. So dear congregation, I am your preacher. I know that many of you are hurting. I pray for you. I often have you in mind when I prepare sermons. I'm often frustrated because I know I don't meet your needs the way I want and God wants. But you do need to know, it's not all about you. There are others here too with different needs. There are lost people who need to be saved. There are blessed people who need to rejoice. There are doubters who need theological explanations. And yes, there are buildings that need to be built and hungry people who need to be fed and money that needs to be raised. And we all need to laugh because a merry heart does good like medicine. But there is a word of the Lord for you. Reach out to him in spite of the crowd, for he's reaching out to you already. Would you allow me to pray for us, please? Father, I thank you for all of those right now who may be in a season that's really difficult, even desperate. May this be a moment, even now, right now, where they would reach out to Jesus and not let anything keep them from that. Father, remind them that you not only know, but you care about what they're going through. And I pray that this very day, this very day, they would find in you the caring friend that you are to the desperate. They would find in you the Savior and the Lord who has an amazing plan for their lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Rex.